If you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to be starting in verse 1. We're going to read this one parable. See what Jesus is teaching. And walk through it. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at the word this morning, as we consider what your Son Jesus taught his disciples, what your Holy Spirit superintended to be recorded through the hand of Luke for your church, We pray, Father, that your spirit would give us ears to hear, that you would turn the lights on in our dark minds so that we would see the truth of your word, that we would believe it, that we would rejoice over it, that we would be repentant. As we walk through this passage and consider all that it says, Father, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word about you, about what you call us to be, how you call us to pray. Father, help us to understand and wrestle rightly with your word so that your son would be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians, we see that injustice abounds, don't we? We see people mocking God, and we see people persecuting God's followers, We live in an era, I don't know if you know this, that is the most bloody era against Christians. We think that was in the first century, but this era we live in is the era in which more Christians are persecuted and martyred than in the history of the world. We just don't happen to see it in America so much. Hundreds of thousands are persecuted and killed every year for their faith. We live in a culture in which millions of babies perish annually, in which marriage and human sexuality are under attack, in which people are calling good evil and evil good. Until Jesus returns and consummates his kingdom, injustice will be the order of the day. So what do we do when injustice is abounding? Is it okay to desire justice to be served? 
Is the passionate desire for justice a biblical godly desire or a sinful desire? Well, let's see what Jesus taught on the subject because he tells us to pray for justice. And so what does he say about praying for justice? Let's look at this parable and walk through it. If you remember the context of this parable when it says, and he told them, he's picking up from the preceding passage. In the preceding passage, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that he is going to return. That you're going to have to decide now whether you're going to live like Noah and trust in the Lord or you're going to live like the people of Noah's day who fall under the hand of God's judgment. Whether you're going to live like Lot, who leaves Sodom and Gomorrah, or whether you're going to live like Sodom and Gomorrah, the people in his day who fall under the hand of God's judgment. You are going to have to decide now whether you're going to live like a disciple who follows Jesus, or you're going to be one who, when Jesus returns, his judgment will fall upon you. That's the context. This is about the return of Jesus, that it will be glorious, that it will be good for God's disciples, and that it will be horrific for those who do not trust in his son. Kiss the son lest he be angry, Psalm 2 tells us. Are you going to trust the son, or are you going to be those to whom the son's righteous indignation will be kindled and shown? In the middle of that, Luke tells us, and he told them a parable. In other words, he's continuing to teach his disciples in light of his teaching about the return of the son. He's teaching his disciples, and he told them a parable. It's a story. The story isn't true, but the story is given to give us something that is true, to teach us something God wants us to know. And he told them a parable to the effect that, now here's the purpose of the parable. You ready? He wants you to know two things, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. There they are. As you read the parable, you're supposed to get those two things from it. Always to pray, and specifically here for justice, and not lose heart. Not be so discouraged that you walk away from the Lord and cease trusting in him. So those are the two things that you're going to get out of this parable as we walk through it. So look at verse 2. And he, he said, in a certain city, so it doesn't really matter what city, it's just some city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. In other words, this judge is unrighteous. He's a judge who doesn't care about what God would want. He doesn't care about what other people think about him. He is an unjust judge. He doesn't care about justice. You guys follow the argument here? In that city, and there was a widow, verse 3, a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Likely what's happened here um, in the nature of things in the first century is that this widow's husband, her husband has obviously died, and she's, le he, she's been left with property and possessions from her husband, but probably what's happened here is her, is her adversary, whoever this is, is someone who's taken advantage of her and taken that property and possessions for themselves. And so she wants justice. I was left with this. This was my way I would be cared for and taken care of. And this man has taken him from me. And so here she is asking for justice against her adversary. Verse 4, for a while he refused. In other words, the judge is like, I'm not interested. I'm not going to help you, lady. But afterward, he said to himself, now look at this. Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Funny thing to say about himself, right? Who wakes up and says, well, you know, though I neither fear God nor respect man, I'm going to go ahead, and, right? 
What does he say? Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, because she kept coming to him, give me justice against my adversary, give me justice against my adversary, give me justice against my adversary, give me justice against my adversary. Now that would get old quick, wouldn't it? She kept coming. Because she kept, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. In other words, I'm not going to give her justice because I believe in justice. I'm going to give her justice because she won't leave me alone about it. So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's just like to be punched in the face. I just don't want this woman to keep punching me in the face with her continual request to give her justice. It's getting really old. You know, they, they talk about a nagging wife being like a dripping faucet in the Proverbs, or it's better to live on the corner of a roof with, than with a nagging wife, right? <clears throat> you guys know that's in the Proverbs. I'm not making that up, okay? I don't know that experience personally, just so you know. But <laughs> this widow is like that. She is not going to leave this judge alone. She is requesting justice, requesting justice. This is an unjust judge. You understand what's happening here? You ought to always pray. He's teaching you this, to always pray and not lose heart. This woman continues to come and knock on the door, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice against my adversary. Verse six, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. In other words, the unrighteous judge is going to give justice if somebody comes enough knocking at the door. The man who does not respect God or man, who doesn't fear the Lord or respect man, he even will finally answer the request if she asks enough. So hear that. Hear what he says. Even he will say, I'm tired of this nagging woman. I will give her justice. Now what does he go on to say? And will not God, who incidentally is righteous and just, will not God give justice to his elect? That's his people. Will he not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he long delay over them? In other words, if this widow is continually knocking at the door of the unrighteous judge, the unjust judge, and he finally is beaten down to the point where he gives her justice, how much more and how much more speedily will God give justice to his people, his elect, if they are continually coming to him and asking for justice? That's why you ought always to pray, and about which you ought always to pray, is that God would give justice. And who does he give justice to? To his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he long delay over them? He, he won't. And you start to ask, why hasn't he brought justice yet? What does it tell you about the prayer life of his people? I tell you, verse 8, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, God will give justice to them speedily, but when the Son of Man comes, the fact is, is that the question becomes, will he find faith on earth? It seems to be that the general condition of the planet at the time the Son of Man returns is going to be one that's wicked. And he's looking for those who are enduring, persevering in faith, who are believing. And because he's delaying, it's easy for us to start to fall away, isn't it? 
This prayer of, for justice is consonant with how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? So tell us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next phrase? Your kingdom come. You don't think that that's just the kingdom of God's grace spreading in our hearts, is it? It is that. But it's the kingdom of God's glory as well, coming when the Son of Man returns to judge the living and the dead, to set up his eternal kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, every time I pray, Jesus tells me, I need to be praying for God's kingdom, for the consummation, for his son to return, for justice against my adversary. I'm supposed to pray for that. I'm commanded by Jesus to pray for justice against the adversary, against the wicked. See, I want God's rule because it's just, and so I'm supposed to be praying for that continually. But this passage causes several questions to spring up for us, doesn't it? Right away you start to have these questions spring up. I'm supposed to pray for that? Well, I want to address, address three questions that come up. At, at some length, I want to address the three, and, and I need you to hang with me as I go through these questions, because some of the answers may shock you. And they won't shock you because you've never seen them in Scripture before. They'll likely shock you because either you haven't read your Bible before, and you've listened to the current spirit of the day instead, or you have read your Bible and you've just skipped right over these passages. It often happens to me. You guys ever find that you're reading through the scripture and you go, oh my gosh, I never saw that before. What was I, was I not reading it the last time I went through? <clears throat> these answers might stoke a lot of questions in you and they may even cause you to be upset with me. And I'm okay with that. I've, I've com- continually said until the day that, that like happened to some of the apostles or Jesus until the day that a crowd wants to drag me out and kill me, I haven't really preached well enough yet anyway, right? So I'm okay with you being upset. But I I tell you, test what I say against the word of God. I'm attempting to say what God says in the Bible, and I don't claim to have worked out all the difficulties of these questions, but I do believe I'm being biblical despite how countercultural this is going to be. So here's the first question. Is it really okay to pray for justice? Now that seems like, oh, of course that's okay. I want you to consider, is it really okay to pray for justice? We're commanded in the Lord's Prayer to pray for justice. But I want you to look further. Look at Revelation chapter 6, because, because we imagine that when we get in heaven, we'll have this perfect love, which we will. But we imagine that once we get to heaven and have perfect love, we, we won't want justice anymore for some strange reason that But look at Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, that, that's the Lord opening the seals. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. In other words, he's seeing in some sense in heaven those who are martyrs. People who had been killed for the faith. They're in heaven and for the witness they had borne. See, they're being slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. I saw them, and what are they doing in heaven? Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. That is redundant, by the way. If he's Lord, he is sovereign. So here's the redundancy. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What are they asking for in heaven? Vengeance. 
When will you finally judge and avenge our blood? Goes on, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. In other words, till God's brought in his people who were to be killed, these, these uh, martyrs who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See, but aren't we supposed to want grace for people? Mercy for people? I mean, that's the question that comes up, right? If I'm supposed to pray for justice, and if martyrs are in heaven praying for vengeance, what about wanting grace and mercy for people? Am I not supposed to want that? How can wanting justice for them be okay too? That's a legitimate question, isn't it? As believers, we live with the reality of having a godly desire for justice against the wicked and a godly desire for grace for the wicked. You hear that? So you have these two things, and I'm gonna show you in a minute, that we're, both, we're supposed to desire. We're supposed to have a godly desire for justice for the wicked and a godly desire for grace or mercy for the wicked. How do you do both of those things? It's difficult for us to get a hold of But let's be sure that just because we don't understand how we can possibly get our mind around all that doesn't mean we shouldn't submit to the word of God says. This is going to be hard to hear, so so please listen to the whole thing, what comes next. Because what I'm about to do is is something that's going to be tough for most people to hear. It's not easy for me to hear as I read and try to unwind, but I hope to unwind it for you in such a way that it's helpful. To have a godly desire for justice against the wicked and a godly desire for grace for the wicked is to say that we are to have a godly love for the wicked, that means all unbelievers, by the way, and a godly hatred for unbelievers at the same time. What? God commands us to love everyone. God loves everyone. How can you say we should love the wicked or the sinners and hate the wicked or the sinners at the same time? How can you say that? Because God loves and hates the wicked at the same time. That's how I can say it. Let's look at the passages to prove it because it's one thing for me to say that. It's another thing for me to demonstrate it from God's word. Look at Psalm. Keep your hand in Luke 18 and look at Psalm chapter 5. And we'll start there and we'll work through some Psalms. Psalm chapter 5. Five, or the fifth psalm. As David is praying, in verse four, he says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. That's why, incidentally, we can't stand before God if we're not perfect, we can't. That's why a perfect one had to come in our place because evil may not dwell with him. And you say, can you stand before God if you're sinful? No, you can't. You can't. Who does God allow into heaven? Only perfect people. He does not have a sign that says no perfect people allowed. He has a sign that says only perfect people allowed. So how do you get there? That's why Jesus came, because none of us qualify. And he was perfect in our place, and we're united to him through faith, and that's how we get in. You follow? 
evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, now listen to this, catch this, you hate all evildoers. That text does not say you hate all evil, you hate all evildoers. He does hate evil, and he hates evildoers. This was a song, by the way. Isn't that an interesting worship song at church? You hate all evildoers, right, you know? Let's look at another one, Psalm chapter 11. Verse 4 again, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. That's a scary verse. He sees it all, guys. And what does he go on to say? The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. He hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 26, look there. Verse one, we'll start. So we see this, another Psalm of David. As he's praying, he's asking the Lord to vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity and I have trusted the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. Now listen to what David says. Why he's attesting about himself before the Lord. As he sings before the Lord of his faithfulness to God, he says, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. In other words, David says to the Lord that he hates the wicked, the evildoers, and then he says, Lord, not only do you hate the, the wicked and the evildoers, the re- one of the reasons that, that I'm shown faithful is because I hate them too. What? How many of you guys have prayed before God and said, you know, Lord, I need your help on this one. Um... You know, you know those predicaments you get in where you make a deal with God? I need your help on this one. I'm gonna do, I'll do this thing that, you don't, that I know I don't wanna do in exchange for you doing this for me. You guys ever done that other than me? It's a, it's a stupid way to pray, but we do it, right? I'll make you this guarantee if you do this. How many of you ever thought, Lord, if you do this for me, I will hate the wicked people and thought that would be a virtuous thing to say? It's just not something we would pray and commend of ourselves, is it? Psalm 31 But David does. Psalm 31, verse 1. Again, here's David singing again. And these were were songs sung in the church. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Now he's saying all of the help he needs for the Lord. Go down to verse Five, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. See, David seems to think that there's such a thing as godly hatred, the kind of hatred that God applauds. David seems to think it exists, that God has it and that he should too. Go to Psalm 139. You guys have read this psalm a bunch of times, I'm sure. This is brought out often, but often particular verses of it are skipped. You know, this is the 
oh, Lord, you've searched me and known you. You formed me when I was in my mother's womb, and, you know, you knit me together, et cetera, et cetera. And we all love this psalm and go, isn't it beautiful? It's wonderful. How many of us spend much time reading verse 21? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Wow. We just run right over that, don't we? Proverbs chapter 6. Keep going. Proverbs chapter 6. There are six, verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Let's hear what they are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet to make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. See, he hates not only these acts, but the kind of people who do these acts. That's the way the language is here. Or famously in Romans 9.13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It also says that in Malachi chapter 1, incidentally. So, so here's the question. Let me, let me make this statement, and then I'll leave the question. God doesn't just hate sin. He hates sinners. You know the Bible never says hate the sin, love the sinner? We say it all the time. The Bible never says that. It's true, though, isn't it? We should hate the sin, always objectively hate the sin, and we should always love the sinner. Both of those things are commanded to us, aren't they? But that statement isn't complete, Because we aren't to understand sin as if the sin is somehow this thing outside the sinner. As this thing out there, there's the sin, and the sinner's here, and somehow he's detached from it. God doesn't send sin to hell. He doesn't exercise holy hatred against sin. He does it against sinners. We are to love, now I want you to hear this, we are to love and hate the sinner as God does. But here's the objection that follows, because I know what it is. Well, that's not my Jesus. It's possible that your Jesus never existed. The Jesus of the Bible says he came to reveal the Father. But doesn't the Jesus of the Bible speak of the Father as someone who loves his enemies? He does, doesn't he? Emphatically, he speaks of someone who loves his enemies. In fact, he teaches us not to hate our enemy, but to love them. And at the same time, David's saying he is commending himself before God for his hatred of his enemy. So what is it? Look at Matthew chapter 5, because I want you to see this, lest we think that I'm not aware that this passage is here too, and that we missed the whole Bible teaching on this idea. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. You have heard that it was said, that is not a reference to the Old Testament there, that's a reference to rabbinical teaching. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now why would rabbis have come up with that idea? Because they read the Psalms and Proverbs. But I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies, 
and pray for those who persecute you. Now catch this. Catch this. You're to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. In other words, you want to be sons of his. And what is he like? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, he shows love to his enemies. So you're to love them because he loves them. But he hates them, doesn't he? And yet he loves them. David's commanding him, commending himself before the Lord for his hatred of his enemies, and yet God commands us to love our enemies. So what is it? How do you reconcile these passages which say that God hates unbelievers and that he loves them? How do you reconcile these passages which Jesus is teaching us not to hate sinners but to love them, and other passages in which the hatred of unbelievers is commended? Well, we just throw our hands up and say, there may be, must not be any way. I, I, will, I will either do this, I will either decide the Bible contradicts itself and so toss it out, or I'll go to option two, which is I'll just read over the verses I don't like and just pretend like they're not there, and then couch it as my Jesus does this. Or option three is I'll believe all of the word of God and try to figure out what he means. And be okay with it if I don't fully get a hold of how to do both of these things. Let's try to unwind it by showing how God's love and hatred looks. Because what we're getting at is the fact that it's okay to desire justice. And that we ought to be regularly praying for justice. God loves sinners and patiently proclaims to them the need for repentance from sin. And patiently proclaims to them their hope in Jesus. He loves them, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, God loves sinners. He loved his enemies not only enough to show kindness and patience in this life, that's what Matthew 5 is talking about. He sends the rain and the sun on the just and the unjust. He's showing kindness to and patience in this life to sinners rather than immediate justice because what ought God to do with all of us you, you, you ought to have been conceived, born, and dropped right into hell, right? That's what hap should happen to all of us because we're all born guilty in Adam. We were conceived in sin. That's where we are. We're corrupt, sinful people. We ought not to be able to live a day on earth. As soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they should have been cast into hell, and that should have been it. But that isn't what happens. God continually shows patience to his people, continually shows kindness to people, because he's gathering them to be saved in his son. See, he loved them enough not only to not show immediate justice, he loves you enough to not show you immediate justice. If he was showing you immediate justice, where would you be? You wouldn't be sitting right there in your chair right now wondering if what I'm saying is true. But he loves you enough to show kindness to you regularly. The fact that you have a comfortable chair to sit in is God's kindness. The fact that this room is heated is God's kindness. We don't deserve any of that. The only heat we deserve is in hell. So, but here we are at a comfortable level of heat, right? He also loved us enough to pour out his wrath upon his son for all those who would ever believe. See, his holy hatred against sinners was poured out on the only one who was ever innocent. 
so that everyone who would ever believe would be saved in him. Jesus took God's holy hatred for us upon himself so that we would receive God's grace because God loves us. And this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation. That word means a satisfaction of wrath for our sins. So we're commanded and urged to look to Jesus and be saved. However, I want you to get a hold of this. His patience, God's patience, will come to an end, and all unbelievers, all those not in Christ, will experience his holy hatred for eternity as he pours out his justice upon them. That's what hell is. Hell is the eternal experience of the holy hatred of God. It either was poured out on Jesus in your place or it will be poured out on you and the distinction is whether or not you're looking to him in faith. The Jesus of the Bible will be the one, I want you to get this, he is the one who comes to execute justice. He, went as the, he came as the lamb, he's returning as the lion. Jesus says that he will return to execute God's justice and holy hatred globally just as he is currently doing so for every individual who dies before that great day. See, when that great day comes, he will execute justice globally. Between now and then, he is executing his justice for every individual who closes their eyes in death. It has been appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. God loves and hates his enemies perfectly. Did you hear that? He loves and hates them perfectly, and we're to imitate him in that. But that's a difficult calling. I can't figure out how to do that. It's beyond my ability. I can't do it. It's impossible. How do I love someone in a godly way and hate someone in a godly way at the same time? That's precisely why we need the Holy Spirit. You guys know that when Jesus ascends the right hand, he sends the Holy Spirit to do what? Dwell in us, change our hearts, make us increasingly from one degree of glory to another, like more like the sun. That's what he does. That's what he does in us. And when we see the high calling of what God has commanded of us, we ought to look at it and go, that's impossible for me to do. And God says, you're right, that's impossible for you to do. That's why you need the Holy Spirit, because you can't do it without him. You won't do it on your own. The Holy Spirit's work is to sanctify us and make us more like the Lord. We're all so concerned about manifestations and will the Holy Spirit help us turn right or left at the next intersection or all this junk. When the Holy Spirit is here to testify to us about the Son and to work in us to give us new life so that we believe, are washed clean of our sins, are forgiven of our sins, are adopted as children, are his children now and made increasingly more like him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit and we need him. We need him because we see the commands are impossible to keep on our own. So we can't possibly love and hate the way God does. We can't possibly show grace and justice perfectly the way God does. Thus, we conclude that God can't be that way. See, God can't be that way. 
rather than concluding that the Holy Spirit is needed to work in us to make us more like him, we seem to have this tendency instead to prefer to lower God to look more like us. Let's bring him down like us because that seems impossible. I don't get it. Rather than fall on our faces in dependence upon him to make make us more like him. So what does loving and hating like God loves and hates look like, looks like? Well, that's the point of Luke 18, isn't it? That we desire justice. That we pray for it. To love and hate like God does is to persevere in praying that God will, now catch this, do two things. Save our enemies, because Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute us. That's to pray for their good, to pray for grace for them. To, we will persevere in praying that God will save unbelievers and that he will return soon to judge the living and the dead and vindicate his people and his holy name. We're to pray for both of those things. Not one or the other, but both. To love and hate like God does is to trust God to carry out judgment and even to desire him to carry out judgment while at the same time recognizing that our role is to proclaim the gospel of the good news to people And to plead with them to turn to him in faith and be saved. Our role is to pray for God to open the ears of unbelievers while we proclaim the gospel to them so that they hear and are saved. Our role is not, hear this, our role is not to carry out justice in the here and now. It's not our role. God's role is to carry out justice. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Notice that, isn't it an interesting thing to comfort you with? You have people who are wicked and mistreating you. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's an interesting comfort, isn't it? Not, hey, pretend like that wasn't an injustice and just kind of suck it up and move past it and love that person. No, it's vengeance is mine. I will repay. Justice will come, and it's okay to desire it. You just have to know whose role it is to carry it out. It isn't yours. It's God's. God currently carries it out through the state. That's what Romans 13 is about. The, Lord, the state does not bear the sword for nothing. You say, but that justice isn't perfect. You're right. That's why we are continually crying out for Jesus to return. To love and hate like God does is to love justice and mercy, to desire both, and to trust him to show both to whom he wills when he wills. God can empower our hearts to love and hate this way, to desire justice and mercy as he does. We will never do it perfectly this side of heaven. That's a given. But we should be always asking him to change us to be more like himself. So that's the first question. Second question, you ready? How come justice is taking so long to come? Okay, we're supposed to pray for it, but why is it taking so long to come? In other words, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? That's a valid question, isn't it? I'm supposed to persevere in praying for Jesus to come and execute justice, but why is it taking him so long? How come he hasn't come back yet? Hasn't there been enough wickedness yet? Well, God is patiently gathering his people. That's the answer. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, because this question is actually asked. It's not asked quite in this context. It's actually asked in a little different context because people are mocking the Christians. You, you may have heard this mocking before. This is the kind of mocking where they say, well, you say Jesus is supposed to return. Where is he? Where is he? It's been a long time. Where is he? You know that was happening in the first century. 
Think about that. 2,000 years ago, the apostle Peter is being asked the question, and the church is being asked the question, well, where's this return of Jesus you promised? So if people are mocking and asking that question then, 2,000 years later, you imagine they are now, right? Where's this return? Chapter 3, this is now the second letter that I'm, verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. The first one was 1 Peter, beloved, writing to the beloved, the believers. In both of them, I'm stirring you up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now catch that. When people say, oh, I think the last days are upon us. The last days were upon us when Peter was writing this. He's comforting them. There's people scoffing you. Isn't that what we told you to happen in the last days? We told you in the last days people will be scoffing you. You're in the last days. 2,000 years ago they were already in the last days, so we're clearly we're in them now. Okay, there's no question Like I said, you don't have to open a newspaper and look around for evidences. We've been in them this whole time. He goes on. They will say, verse 4, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, things are going on. And what does Jesus tell us in Luke 17, if you were here last week, that things are going to continue on the world. People are going to eat and drink and be given in marriage and get, and, and, right? You follow that? It's going to be like regular old life and then Jesus comes. And that's what he's saying. Is they're carrying on saying, hey, it's just been like from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world then existed was deluged with water and perished. In other words, they forget the flood. God created it all and then he flooded it. Don't think his judgment isn't coming. He goes on, but by verse six, by, that same, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, it really hasn't been that long. Not from the Lord's perspective. And he goes on to say, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now here's why he hasn't come. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, God will execute his holy hatred and justice, but he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He wants to show mercy to sinners. He's on a mission to save them and show them grace. That's why Jesus taught in Matthew 24, 14, as he was talking about his return to some degree and coming judgment, he said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations or all peoples or all ethnic groups. Then the end will come. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for God to get done gathering his elect, all the people he will save from across all of the earth. 
We're waiting for the gospel to be preached to all the people groups, all the ethnes, and then the end will come. There are thousands of people groups who've never heard of Jesus. Are you aware of that? Whole people groups, never heard of him. The average American hears of Jesus some three to 400 times a year through all forms of media, etc. There are people groups who never hear of him, ever, in their lifetime. So while you are praying for justice, you also ought to be praying that God will raise up workers for the harvest. And you ought to be supporting those workers to go out and make the gospel known. That's why we started Radius International, and that's why we support Radius International, because we're training people to take the gospel to people groups who've never heard. See, because we're living our lives in light of the return of Christ. We hope to see Jesus come soon, and if we hope for justice to, and we hope for justice to prevail, therefore, we must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all nations. And we must pray for, Jesus, for justice, sorry, and we must pursue personal holiness. It's interesting, if you look at verse 11 through 13 in 2 Peter 3, after that he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, if the end is the return of Jesus and his execution of justice and his establishment of his kingdom, and it isn't living for all this stuff because it's all going to dissolve, then what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be the kind of people that live your lives for him in holiness and godliness. Now watch this, verse 12, waiting for, and now catch this word, and hastening the coming of the day of God. What? Hastening? I mean, we can actually hurry up the coming of Jesus through holiness and godliness? What's interesting is if you look at Luke 18 as well, and verse 7 and 8, and will not give, God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he long delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. What? If we cry to God day and night, he will give us justice speedily? His son will come soon? We can hasten the day through godliness and holiness, through, pro, pre, through prayer and through proclaiming the gospel to the unreached nations? Yes, we can, to borrow a phrase from Barack Obama. <laughs> God has sovereignly set the day of his return. Please know that. It's a day that no man knows, but God has also sovereignly determined that he will use means to bring about that day. So our prayer and holiness and proclamation of the gospel really do matter. They are the means God uses to bring about his ends, and he's appointed both. Thus, we should cry out to God for justice. We should pursue personal holiness, and we should proclaim the gospel of the ends of the earth. What we should not do is continue in this life as if this is all there is. As if our lives ought to be shaped, instead our lives ought to be shaped by the hope of Christ's return. That ought to shape our lives. See, every year when we gather for Advent, we're remembering his first coming, but we're not doing it as only a backwards-looking exercise. We're also doing it as a forward-looking exercise because, because his first coming was true. Therefore, so is his second, and so we're looking forward to that. We're celebrating and remembering this to remind us of what's coming when he returns. But it'll be difficult to wait for justice. Faith will begin to flag in the face of ongoing persecution, won't it? Which leads to the third question, and I'm going to conclude with this, and it won't take as long. 
So what do I do when I'm struggling to persevere? Anybody there? Anybody struggling to persevere, to keep your eye on the ball, right? To remember that life is about Christ's kingdom and not about my kingdom? To pray without ceasing that God would return soon, that he would judge the living and the dead, that he would save sinners, that he would raise up workers for the harvest, to live lives of godliness and holiness in light of his return? Anybody else struggling with that on a daily basis like I am? Struggling to persevere? Sometimes thinking to yourself, I might as well just chuck it and walk away from all of it because I don't know how to persevere through things that are difficult well. So how do I persevere? Well, I heed the warning and encouragement of Hebrews 10, so let's, let's look there because Jesus has clearly told us in Luke 18 that he wants us to not lose heart, that he wants us to persevere. So how do we do it? That's great, Jesus. You want us to persevere. How do we do it? Look at Hebrews chapter 10. There's a warning here, and there's encouragement here, and I want you to heed them both. Hebrews chapter 10, looking in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, now notice that, that isn't something you ought to just run right over, you have confidence to come before in the presence of the Lord by the blood of Christ. He got you there. Not, you have confidence to enter the holy places because you're a good person. You have confidence to be in the presence of God because you did lots of nice things. So we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What did you add to that? Nothing. All him. His work. By the new and living way that he opened through the curtain, that is through his flesh. In other words, you know when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that kept you out of the holy of holies or the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, was split in two so that we could enter now into that holy place, into his presence. That's why later on the scripture says that when the spirit dwells in us, that we're the temple of God, right, as God's people, that his spirit is here, that he's dwelling in us, that we're in his presence. We have that because of Jesus. And he goes on. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us. Now notice, he gives three different times. He says, let us, let us, let us, right? Three times as a result of the gospel. In other words, because the gospel's true, let us do these things. You ready? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of, the, of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, draw near the Lord with a new heart that's been given to you through trust in Christ and his work. What do you do to persevere you remember the gospel and you draw near to him. You know that because of his work, you're able to draw near to him. And so you pray and you read your Bible and you worship. You guys follow me on that? You're drawing near, you're constantly pressing in, recognizing that the only reason you have a right to do that is because of what Jesus has done for you. So you're constantly reminded of the gospel and drawing near. What is the second one? Verse 23. So first, draw near to him because of your confidence in the gospel. 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In other words, not only to draw near the Lord, but we are to hold fast, hold fast to the confession because God who promises is faithful. So you can draw near to him because of the gospel and he's washed you clean and now you can be in front of him. 
But you're also supposed to hold fast to the confession of faith, the fact that all these things we say are true, you hold fast to them knowing that he's faithful. Third, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, we're to encourage one another to love and good works. In other words, not only am I supposed to recognize that it's because of Jesus' work in cleansing me, in spite of how guilty I feel, in spite of how sinful I feel, in spite of how messed up I am, because I am all those things. In spite of all that existential experience of my own sinfulness, because of Jesus and his gospel, because of his forgiveness of my sins, my clen- of his cleansing me of all unrighteousness, of him making a way for me into the presence of God, of him splitting the curtain in the temple so I can be there, because he's my great high priest, because that's all true, I can continue to draw near to him. Hear that? I have to be reminded of that when I'm struggling to persevere. Because sometimes when I'm struggling to persevere, I sin. And then when I sin, I think, well, who am I to keep coming back to the Lord? Well, who was I to come before him in the first place? No one. I came before him because of Jesus, and I have to be reminded of that. I can continue to come before him because of Jesus. You follow me on that? Struggling to persevere, I have to remind myself that it's only because of Jesus that I was able to come before him in the first place and continue to draw near through Jesus. Struggling to persevere, I have to hold fast to the confession of faith that I made. Not not my subjective confession, but the objective truth about him and his work. I have to hold fast to that because he who promises is faithful. He made a promise that he would not only save me, but carry me to the end, that he would never let go of me, and I trust him. You know what that's like? You're struggling to believe, you're struggling to trust, you're sinning, you're thinking, will he forgive me? You're wondering if I should just chuck it all and walk away, and the Spirit of God is testifying to your heart, your spirit, that you are a child of God, and so no matter how much you want to walk away, you just can't do it, because you're remembering that he who called you is faithful, right? that he keeps his promises. Last one is we encourage one another to love and good works. What's interesting about that is it requires other people. He goes on, encourage one another, right? Stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. This is, do I have to go to church? Yes. There's your command. Do not neglect to meet together. Well, I got other things to do on Sunday. I'm sorry. God doesn't give you an option about his commands. He just commands you. And he tells you, you keep them because I'm God and you're not. Don't neglect to meet together. Why? Because you have to stir one another up to good works. And if you're not stirring one another up to love and good works, you know what you're gonna, what's going to happen? You are not going to persevere in the faith. You won't. You will get eaten alive by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You have to keep meeting together. You have to keep gathering with other believers to stir one another up to love and good works. 
And he goes on, he says, interestingly, look at what he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I could ask you, the early church gathered every day to stir one another up to love and good works so they would persevere in the faith. 2,000 years later, are we nearer the day of Christ's return or further from it? We're 2,000 years closer to it. Yet we're, we're, we're wondering if we should even gather with other believers four times a month. Right? And we wonder why it is that so many believers are struggling to persevere. We, ha- we need each other to persevere. We need each other. You hear that? Need each other to persevere. We will get eaten alive if we do not have each other. So how do we persevere? We draw near to the Lord knowing that Jesus is our priest, that he's made us clean, that he's given us the right to be there. We encourage one another. We hold fast knowing that, to our confession knowing that God is faithful. That's how we persevere in prayer as we trust the Lord and ask him to return. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us You would help us to be a people who pray, who love justice and mercy, who have a godly love and a godly hatred, who are like you. We, we admit we can't do it. We admit that we struggle with perseverance and faith. We ask that you would continue to work in us, keep us to yourself that you would change us by the work and the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would trust more and more in you. Father, help us to draw near to you in faith, knowing that your Son has cleansed us, that he is our high priest, that he's given us the right to be before you. Help us be ever mindful of that, especially, Father, when we are slipping into sin and starting to think that we don't, that we can't come before you anymore, knowing that we never had a right in the first place. Help us remember that, Lord, especially when we begin to succeed in righteousness and start to become prideful and puffed up and think that it has something to do with us. Remind us that it's always ever about your son and his gift for us. Father, help us to hold fast the confession of our faith, knowing that you are faithful to keep your promises. You're faithful when you said that you would save us and you would keep us and that you would return to judge the living and the dead and consummate your kingdom and that you would bring us into eternal glory where we no longer suffer, no longer struggle with sin, no longer taste death. Father, help us to trust that you're faithful and you will keep your promises and help us to not neglect gathering together but to instead gather together and encourage one another to love and good deeds. And even more, Lord, as we see the day drawing near, help us be ever more mindful of our need for one another to continue in the faith, our need for your Holy Spirit to continue in the faith, our need for a faithful God who made and keeps his promises in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.